the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Two sessions ago, I began this post-resurrection rewind series with some provocative questions. The annual celebration is now past, but is the living now over? And has this once-a-year celebration now propelled us to live out the resurrected life? I even propose that to live out this resurrection life, we must have a consciousness that the road to the resurrection of our Redeemer is paved with divine paradoxes, and we must both understand these paradoxes and be willing to embrace them. And friends, this only comes through personal surrender, that being surrendering our soul-driven life, our baser self that operates purely in the natural realm, the realm of the senses, the realm of feelings and emotions. The New Testament term is suke life. In contrast to this human-driven life, the New Testament uses another term representing the spirit-driven life, the term Zoe life, and we'll expound on this shortly. So, friends, in part one we saw paradox number one, greatness God's way. In part two we saw paradox number two, reciprocity God's way. Today in part three we'll see paradox number three, salvation God's way, with the subtitle, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Here we'll lay bare the path to eternal life. If you missed any sessions, just access them at faithtalk1360.com. Well, I'd like to begin today's session with a conversation between the late G. Campbell Morgan, well-known evangelist and teacher, and a coal miner he once met with. The coal miner said, I'd give anything to believe God would forgive my sins, but I just can't believe he'll forgive them if I merely ask him. It's just too cheap. Morgan graciously replied, "'My dear friend, did you work today?' The miner answered, "'Yes, I worked down in the mine today.' Morgan then asked, "'How were you lifted out of that pit? Did you have to pay?' Immediately the miner said, "'Of course not. I just stepped into the cage and was lifted to the top.' Morgan then asked, "'Weren't you afraid to trust that cage? Wasn't it too cheap?' 
The miner quickly answered, Oh, no! While it was certainly cheap for me, it cost the company a lot of money to sink that shaft and install that elevator. Hmm. Well, after he heard himself say those words out loud, he was suddenly struck by the truth. It was as if a light bulb went off in his head. He realized the spiritual parallel. What had not cost him anything, salvation, was certainly not cheap for God. Before that aha moment, it never dawned on him that God paid a great price in sending his son, Jesus, so he could lift fallen humanity out of the pit of sin. This miner finally got it. All anyone had to do was, by faith, step into the cage. Friends, some years back, U.S. News and World Report surveyed Americans on who they thought would most likely go to heaven. The results were interesting. 65% indicated they believed Oprah Winfrey and Michael Jordan would very likely go to heaven. 79% believed Mother Teresa would go to heaven. Only one person scored higher than Mother Teresa, and it was over 80%. You wondering who beat Mother Teresa? Who's those polls said would very likely go to heaven? Well, the answer was the people filling out the survey. Over 80% of them believed they'd go to heaven. Interesting, right? Well, friends, on this journey, we're learning that the road to the resurrection of our Redeemer is peppered with divine paradoxes. And as Christians, we must not only understand these paradoxes, but be willing to embrace them, embrace their truths. Embracing these paradoxical truths, friends, only comes through faith plus our surrender. The scripture text that set the stage for us was Luke nine twenty three and 24, where Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life, life here is the New Testament word, suke. In other words, our suke life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, same word, for my sake, he's the one who will save it. This is not an isolated passage. Its truth is repeated in Luke fourteen twenty six and 27 and Matthew ten thirty eight and 39 with Matthew sixteen twenty four and 25. Well, let's hear this in a slightly easier translation. If you want to come with me, you must forget yourself. Take up your cross every day and follow me. If you want to save your own life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. You see, friends, embracing the truths of these divine paradoxes means surrendering our suke-driven life, that part of us that represents our baser self, the self that operates purely in the natural realm. In other words, the realm of the senses, including feelings and emotions. Friends, the road to the resurrection of our Redeemer is the path of surrender, the path of crucifixion. As we've been learning, one function of the cross is to put to death our suke-driven life. Only by dying to the self-driven life can we distance ourselves from our old life and habit patterns, even our thinking patterns. Now, on the other side of the spiritual coin, so to speak, is zoe. The New Testament writers use this key term to refer to eternal life. Sometimes our English Bibles just say life. Other times they'll say eternal life. But it's the same word, zoe. What's interesting is the New Testament writers favored zoe over the other word available to them in the Greek language, 
bios. Sound familiar? Bios is where we get English words such as biology, biopsy, probiotic, and the like. Bios simply means physical existence. To those in the first century, it meant life as mere existence. The New Testament Christ followers and the writers of the New Testament used it negatively nine times to mean living for self. Conversely, they use Zoe over 130 times to describe the fuller life. In other words, eternal spiritual life. This contrast, friends, is intentional. Zoe is not mere existence, and it's not meant to merely convey duration. In other words, everlasting, as we tend to perceive it. Rather, its goal is to reveal or uncover a whole new moral and ethical dimension to life. So it's absolutely essential to view eternal life as having both duration and dimension. In other words, not just everlasting life to come, but ever present life in the here and now. Well, at this juncture, you might be thinking, so what, Pastor Tom? And I get that. I do. The significance of this will come into play as we grasp these divine paradoxes Jesus was teaching his disciples, particularly during the interval between his transfiguration recorded in Matthew 17 and his triumphal entry, our Palm Sunday, recorded in Matthew 21. And I'm sure we're all familiar with what happened just one week after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, that parade route where the excited populace waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna! His followers were surprised and shocked that Jesus was arrested, tortured, and finally executed, crucified. You see, sandwiched between these two significant events is a string of Jesus' teachings that alert us to several key divine paradoxes. And these paradoxes are set against the backdrop of the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, sometimes referred to as the kingdom of God. So in today's session, friends, I'll lift out a very significant paradox found in Matthew nineteen sixteen through 30, and why I'm calling it Salvation God's Way, with the subtitle Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and the Path to Eternal Life. Because Matthew 19's paradox is where Jesus encounters a rich man, or more popularly known as the rich young ruler. And as we dissect this event, please keep in mind we're slicing a piece of Jesus' teaching ministry out of the last two weeks or so of his life. And this particular encounter is bringing us closer to that fateful moment that will set in motion the road to the resurrection of our Redeemer. And Jesus knew this. Yet, it's also quite clear that Jesus' followers, along with the multitudes of common people, were clueless. Some English Bibles have a heading over chapter 21, like the triumphal entry. Likely, this is because it represents the prevailing mindset of the first century Jewish people. Remember now, they all anticipated Jesus would lead them to a triumph or victory over the oppressive regime of Rome. Well, friends, let's read Matthew nineteen sixteen through 30. A man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus replied, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, and here's our word, Zoe, keep the commandments. He inquired, Which ones? 
Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Did you notice the one commandment Jesus intentionally left out? The young man responded, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, in other words, complete, or meet the goal, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, let me just say here that the context of this statement is not a reference to those who own wealth, but to those for whom wealth owns. Jesus is not opposed to possessing wealth, only opposed to wealth possessing us. So Jesus left out one commandment, the commandment, you shall not covet. This rich young man coveted his wealth and demonstrated it by walking away and rejecting salvation God's way. The text continues, when the disciples heard this, in other words, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, they were greatly astonished and asked Jesus, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Well, friends, before we can begin to understand this account and its underlying paradox, let's clarify a little more the use of the phrases, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, okay? The phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is interchangeable with the kingdom of God, a phrase pregnant with meaning to first century Jews, a concept whose cultural, political, and religious significance we 21st century westernized Gentile believers need to grasp. King is not only used in the Bible for human rulers, but ultimately for God as the supreme and sovereign ruler of the world. Psalm 47, 2 exclaims, For the Lord Most High, Yahweh, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. You see, friends, national Israel understood her relation to God as a kingdom, with him as their ultimate king, even though in their history they were also ruled by human kings. Through the prophet Isaiah, God declared, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King, in Isaiah 43, 15. God's rulership over Israel was a foretaste of a yet future kingdom where evil would be fully overcome and where those living in that kingdom would know only blessedness, peace, and joy. Inextricably linked to this expectation of a future kingdom of bliss was the coming of their Messiah. Their messianic expectancy included this hoped-for kingdom. In fact, Messiah's coming would signal and trigger the coming of this kingdom. 
John the Baptist wowed his audiences when he announced this expected and hoped-for kingdom was at hand in the person of Jesus. Matthew 3, 2 records his first declaration, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus authenticates John's declaration when he officially embarked on his own public ministry. Right after his wilderness temptation, we read in Matthew 4.17, From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And shortly after that, in the Nazareth synagogue, Jesus stood up and read from the prophet Isaiah. Remember that dramatic moment? Remember what Jesus read? It's Luke four sixteen through 21. But for our purpose today, the significant verse is verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, let's pause here a moment, friends. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I want you to know how valuable you are as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is listener-supported. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which disciples many Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at a word from the word at minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Well, friends, that Isaiah portion Jesus quotes in Luke 4 was that the one spirit of the Lord rested on would preach the gospel to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recover sight to the blind, free the downtrodden, and so forth, basically describing the ministry Jesus himself was fulfilling. And in so doing, Jesus was declaring that the kingdom has now arrived, and he, as its king, was now here. Interestingly, after Jesus' public ministry was up and running, he makes another declaration. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew 12, 28. So in effect, Jesus declared that through his ministry, the kingdom of God has dawned. But Jesus' disciples failed to realize that the kingdom that arrived with him did not include triumphal victory over Rome's regime, which the Jews drooled for. This is evident by the crowd's response when Jesus entered Jerusalem in Matthew 21, and their cries of Hosanna, which meant, Save now! You see, both the disciples and the multitudes of common people failed to recognize that Jesus brought a kingdom that arrived secretly, like leaven, a kingdom that arrived inconspicuously, like a mustard seed, a kingdom that arrived with apparent smallness, like a small pearl, yet with great value. Friends, remember the first century Jewish people expected the kingdom of God to obliterate the present evil age and bring it to a swift end. But the mystery they missed was that the kingdom of God arrived mysteriously and in so doing didn't fulfill their expectations. But the reality was that this kingdom of God invaded the present evil age. But instead of obliterating it, it overlapped it. We could even say it infiltrated it. The kingdom of God inaugurated by Jesus' arrival and ministry dawned in the form of a mystery. A mystery that did not overwhelm the world overtly, but rather began working covertly. 
Honestly, it was hard for the Jews to see both kingdoms now existing side by side, and that their ideal kingdom, one that will bring the present evil age to an end, as foretold by the Old Testament prophets, would only be fully realized at the Messiah's second coming. Admittedly, I'm amazed the disciples ever got it. I always read Acts 1-6 with bated breath. Nanoseconds before Jesus ascends back to the Father, the disciples ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Really? Well, believe it or not, friends, all this infuses meaning into Jesus' encounter with the rich man. Ah, you thought I forgot about him, didn't you? But we need this backdrop to properly interpret several statements made during that conversation. Friends, there's more here than meets the eye. So let's take a second look at the story and see what riches await us. No pun intended. Matthew 19.16 introduces us to a man that came up to Jesus. How we know he's a rich young ruler is we get rich from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, young from Matthew only, and ruler from Luke only. He then asks Jesus this fateful question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's interesting about this expression, eternal life, is that it's used interchangeably with a few other expressions or words in this account. Eternal life appears in verses 16 and 29, like bookends. Heaven shows up in verse 21. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God appear together in verses 23 and 24, and why they're interchangeable. Saved appears in verse 25. And finally, renewal of all things, or regeneration, or age to come, appears in verse 28. When we combine the meanings of these words or expressions, we discover that layered underneath the story, these terms point us to a realm inhabited by saved people who've been delivered from the tyrannies or enslavements of this world, including its wealth or riches. And the people of this kingdom, a.k.a. the kingdom of God, are now living a life under God's rule and reign. We also discover that this deliverance from the enslavements of the world can only be accomplished by God. Human efforts are impossible. Recall verse 26. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So, friends, it's this understanding that we must read into this seemingly innocent question posed by the rich young ruler. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Which sets the stage in Matthew 19.16. And this account forces us to focus on the do part. In other words, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's our word Zoe again. Notice how Jesus directs the conversation. In verse 18, he intentionally quotes only commandments that deal with our relationship with each other. In other words, relating to our social and civic responsibilities. In verse 20, we learn this man had human achievement or effort in mind and thought he had a shoe in, thought he aced the entrance exam to get into the kingdom of God. But he was stymied to discover the entrance exam included something he was not prepared for. And this uncovered his true heart motive. In verse 19, Jesus wraps up his list with, Love your neighbor as yourself. And the ultimate opportunity to inherit eternal life was about to be offered. In verse 21, Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. The sad conclusion to this encounter is that the rich young ruler went away sad. Verse 22, Because he had great wealth, 
This word also implies having possessions or real estate. Friends, here's the crux of today's divine paradox. It was inconceivable to the Jewish mind of the day that wealth could hinder one from entering the kingdom of God, since wealth to them was a sign of God's favor. Wealth was actually perceived as a reward from God for being good. Perhaps this rich young ruler figured he was addressing an equal. Jesus is a good teacher, and I'm a good man. What's interesting, friends, is that in this conversation and intertwined in this paradox, Jesus is correcting mankind's faulty view of goodness and subtly declaring himself to be God, possessing the same goodness that God possesses. And that wealth and that achievement can actually blind us to our need for Jesus, salvation God's way. So no matter how good we think we are, we can't eliminate or overcome the sin present in our nature. Only Jesus can. Only trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross provides the shoe-in to the kingdom of God. Friends, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation, God's way. Friends, are you sure you have salvation, God's way? Come before God right now and humbly say this prayer. God, I realize Jesus died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead to give me new life. Forgive me of my sins. Jesus, I welcome you into my heart and life as Savior and Lord. Give me this eternal life and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. Now and then it's healthy to take stock of our spiritual condition and be confident we're really in the faith. Paul's parting words to the Corinthians had this challenge. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Well, I love coming alongside you who are without a church home or you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are at faithtalk1360.com Also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners in christianbody.net A Word from the Word is broadcast to over 70 countries. Friends, I invite you to partner with our mission and invest in the ministry of A Word from the Word to help us become fully funded. Listeners like you keep A Word from the Word on the air. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.